Good morning. The scripture reading for this morning is Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, uh, which, if you're using a pew Bible, can be found on page 571. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Isaiah 7, 1 through 9. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sher Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remalia. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remalia, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Please be seated. So I have a question this morning. Why are people fascinated by horror? This is a serious question. Why do people knowingly watch a film or TV show that is intended to frighten and disturb them? Have you ever asked this of yourself? It's, it's puzzling to me, yet it appears that the horror industry is on the rise in recent days. With movies such as Pirates of the Caribbean, The Sixth Sense, I Am Legend, World War Z, What Lies Beneath, The Blair Witch Project, The Conjuring, The Ring, Paranormal Activity. With TV shows like The Walking Dead, American Horror Story, True Blood, and Penny Dreadful, with blockbuster series such as Harry Potter and Twilight, there seems to be more vampires, more zombies, more witches, evil spirits, ghosts, and demons in our cultural imagination than ever before. And I'd like to know, why? What is it about contemporary American society that is drawn to the guts and the gore, the grotesque, and the ghastly. 
If you've thought about this phenomenon and have an explanation for it, please find me after the service. I'd like to hear what you think. And although I'm not convinced I have the answer, I would like to advance a theory to you this morning. Indulging in horror as entertainment is a coping mechanism for our society's latent fears. Let me elaborate. Despite stunning achievements in scientific uh, discovery and technology, deep down we all know that we have little control over our lives and the world around us. Our nation takes precautions to protect itself, but we are vulnerable to terrorism and school shootings. We have medical equipment today that our ancestors could not even dream of, and yet we are largely powerless against Ebola. We may take great pains to secure our investments and financial future, but then a recession hits. We eat healthy food and exercise, but suddenly we are diagnosed with cancer. And the list goes on. ISIS, hurricanes, identity theft, nuclear proliferation. These are chaotic forces that our society cannot control. So an uneasy feeling can well up inside each one of us. It's a restless anxiety when we are faced with forces that are beyond us. And the question becomes, how are we going to manage that internal angst? How are we going to deal with the fears within? I think our contemporary society has dealt with fear basically in two ways. The first way is to avoid it or deny it. Our culture has become so adept at distracting ourselves around the clock so that we have never have to face the greatest threats and most sobering realities of human life, especially death. Think about it. How often do people in America talk seriously about their own death? How many people lay their own mortality to heart? How often do we even see real human death? I'm 34, year old, 34 years old and I've never seen a dead body in my life, let alone watch someone die. And I bet I'm not alone. As a society, we pay hospitals and nursing homes to keep death behind closed curtains so that we don't have to deal with it. And ironically, all the while, our movies... TV shows and video games are filled with graphic and horrible deaths. And I think that's because entertaining ourselves with vampires, zombies, and witches makes death and forces of evil seem unreal. No one actually believes in vampires, so watching Twilight is actually a way to escape our real fears by indulging in fantastical ones. Entertaining ourselves with horror puts a distance between ourselves and what we truly fear. It's a coping mechanism. If denial is one of our society's strategies for dealing with fear, then I believe the second strategy is fretful activity. This is the 
take every possible precaution in order to maximize our safety and well-being approach. We all feel the pull to be informed about every possible threat, don't we? And our so-called news channels happily oblige us by pumping the airwaves full of terrorist activities, storm warnings, consumer alerts, outbreaks of disease, stories of tragedy, safety recalls, and fear, fear, fear. Therefore, in response, we are encouraged to purchase the safest food, drive the safest cars, live in the safest neighborhoods, make the safest investments, all the while being covered by the most comprehensive insurance in case anything goes wrong. I'm convinced that in response to fear, our society urges us to construct every possible wall, secure every possible entrance, install every possible lock, and then buy guns and an alarm system so that our lives become fortresses that are impenetrable to risk and danger. Or so we hope. Let me be clear. We are in a precarious position in this world. There are a multitude of threats around us menacing our safety and well-being. Now the question is, how are you going to deal with fear? By living in an entertainment bubble of denial? By frantically taking matters into your own hands? Or is there another way? The passage I read earlier, Isaiah 7, 1 through 9, addresses this very topic of how God's people should respond to threats and fear. And we will see in this text both responses I have mentioned. Panicked preparation and refusal of reality. Yet before we turn to the text again, let's pray. Father, again, we just ask that you would come and be present with us this morning by your Spirit. I pray that you'd open our eyes and open our hearts to the power of your word this morning. Please, God, show us how we are to deal with the fears and the threats that surround us all the time. And teach us to walk in your ways, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the plan. We're going to walk through this text, Isaiah 7, 1 through 9, and then linger over the second half of verse 9, which will demand most of our attention. So first, the threat. Look at verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. So this is a two-on-one fight. Judah's northern neighbors, Israel and Syria, are ganging up on Judah. And verses 5 and 6 inform us of their intention. Let's look at that. Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remelia, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, 
and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it. Now, why would Israel and Syria want to set up a puppet king in Judah? It may be helpful at this point to give a little of the background to the situation that we learn from the book of 2 Kings and the book of 2 Chronicles. Isaiah 7 takes place around 735 BC. And the kingdom of Assyria has been gathering strength toward the northeast and making incursions into Israel and Syria. And fearing that Assyria would overrun their territories, Syria and Israel band together to stand against Assyria. And then Judah, which is in the south, does not join this allegiance. Rather, we learn from 2 Kings 16 that King Ahaz sent messengers to the king of Assyria saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Now, it's unclear whether this formal plea for an alliance comes before or after the events narrated in Isaiah 7, but the point is that Syria and Israel do not view Judah as an ally against Assyria. So Rezin and Pekah probably decide to take out King Ahaz and install their own king in Jerusalem so that they do not need to worry about being attacked from the south while they defend their territory in the north from the Assyrian Empire. So the threat to King Ahaz and Israel was very real. We learn from 2 Chronicles 28 that Syria and Israel have already slaughtered and captured thousands of Judah's men, women, and children. Now Syria and Israel are setting up to attack Jerusalem itself and finally subjugate the kingdom of Judah. And remember, ancient warfare was brutal. There was no Geneva Convention in the ancient Near East. If you want a graphic description of what siege warfare was like, which is what King Ahaz was facing, then read Deuteronomy chapter 28. Although I don't recommend that you read it just after you have eaten. So the prospect of total national defeat was for Judah what we may call a clear and present danger. How does King Ahaz of Judah respond to this threat? We read of his reaction in verse 2. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. This is a powerful metaphor, isn't it? Imagine the, the heart of Ahaz as a tiny leaf at the end of a tree branch in a windstorm. You can picture it. It's fluttering. It's totally at the mercy of this threat, and at any moment it could be blown away altogether. This is a human physiological manifestation of fear. Fear makes our hearts race. It makes us nervous and jumpy. We feel agitated inside, unable to be still and at peace. 
Then notice in verse 4 as well, where the Lord says, Do not let your heart be faint. This is another description of how fear affects our bodies. Have you ever been so scared that you started to feel weak at the knees? Or as though all your strength and confidence just rushed out of your body? So what does Ahaz do to deal with this debilitating fear? Look at verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet at Ahaz, you and Sheresh Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. At first, this detail may seem unimportant or maybe confusing. What is Ahaz doing at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field? In 2 Kings 2020, we read this about one of the achievements of King Hezekiah who came after King Ahaz. It says there, Hezekiah made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city. In other words, Hezekiah created an internal water supply for the city of Jerusalem. Now, why is this important? Well, if a foreign army surrounded a city and laid siege to it, the first thing to run out would be the water supply. And once the water was gone, the inhabitants of the besieged city could only hold out for a few days. So having an internal water supply within the city was critical to any city's survival. However, in the time of King Ahaz, this project had not been finished yet. So when King Ahaz hears that these foreign armies would be coming to surround Jerusalem, he goes out to inspect the city's water supply, desperately making provisions for the impending siege. And so what is the significance of this detail in verse 3? King Ahaz was not trusting in the Lord. Ahaz learned of the threat and he decided to take matters into his own hands, frantically doing whatever he could do to prepare for the worst. And don't forget that King Ahaz also sought help from Assyria, which would have required that he enter into a covenant with Assyria and formally recognize Assyrian gods. We learn from 2 Kings that Ahaz sent the silver and gold from God's temple as a present to the king of Assyria, and even that Ahaz burned one of his own sons as an offering. Ahaz is flailing for something firm to grab hold of, and in his desperation, he is reaching for anything that might offer him support. And isn't this what fear compels us to do? Isn't this how, so often how we react to threats? By desperately getting busy? By taking whatever preventative measures we can to minimize or avert the danger? And sometimes, do we make compromises with the world in the interests of self-preservation? Now, I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't be forward-looking or wise in preparing for the future. The book of Proverbs instructs us to learn from the ant, 
which stockpiles provisions for wintertime. Yet the question we all need to ask ourselves is, what is the posture of our heart as we make plans for the future and endeavor to provide for ourselves and our families? Is our risk assessment and risk management really an act of fear management? Are preparations for the future an attempt to quell and pacify our own internal anxieties? Is our trust in the Lord merely lip service while the real weight of responsibility rests on our own shoulders? One good indication of where your heart is will be when you enter into a crisis and your best laid plans begin to unravel. If your real trust is in your own prior provisions and preparations, then you will begin to panic. If your trust is in the Lord, then you might take some further action, but you yourself will not be shaken because your confidence was never in your own strategic calculations or strength. So the threat facing Ahaz and Judah was a siege and death. Ahaz's reaction was fear and panicked preparation. What does the Lord do? Look at verses 4 through 7. And say to Ahaz, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remalia has devised evil against you, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. Now, I have to admit, I really enjoy a good trash talker. And what is the number one rule for trash talking? If you're going to talk the talk, you better what? You better walk the walk. You better back up what you're saying. And make no mistake, God always backs up his trash talking. Look at verse 4. God calls the kings of Syria and Israel these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. I like how Ray Ortland Jr. paraphrases God's message to King Ahaz. He says, Stay calm before these two burned-out cigarette butts. I mean, this is pure and divine smack talk, isn't it? God looks at the anger and the power of resin and Pekka and he says, you're just spitting out a last few sparks before I snuff your butts. Then God has Isaiah repeat their evil plot. Let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. And then God says, oh yeah? That's what you're going to do, huh? Well, hear what I have to say. It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. Boom. (laughs) I love it. That's my God. 
and you best not be messing with him. He will bring you down if you try to touch his people. The Lord is always going to shatter the proud. He is always going to assert his sovereignty against all pretenders, as we will see clearly later in the book of Isaiah. What then is the point of saying that the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin, which is the first half of verse 8. And then the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. What, what, what are the point of these lines? And I admit they seem a bit cryptic, at least to me. I take them as reminders to Ahaz that the leaders of these two kingdoms are just men, mere mortals. Furthermore, you'll notice that he, God refers to Pekah as the son of Ramalia, which is a jab at Pekah's lineage because Ramalia was at one time the captain, not the king, of Israel's army. And Pekah thus had no royal ancestry. He gained the throne through a military coup not by divine right. So Pekah was a usurper going up against the royal house of David, the lineage that God had promised to protect and bless. So because these evil plans are made by two wicked men, their plot will not stand. It shall not come to pass. Verses 8 and 9 remind me of the last verse in Isaiah chapter 2, which we have already considered. It says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? So this is God's message to Ahaz. Stop regarding these two windbags, Rezin and Pekah. Their boasts will come to nothing. My promises shall prevail. This brings us to verse 9b, the culminating lesson we are supposed to learn from this passage. If you are reading from a Bible that has footnotes, you may notice that the occurrences of you in verse 9 are plural. Isaiah has been speaking directly to Ahaz in these verses, So by suddenly shifting to a plural audience, if you, plural, are not firm in faith, you, plural, will not be firm at all, I think Isaiah is signaling that this warning is intended for more than just the king. This is a warning for all the people of Judah. It is a warning for the original readers of Isaiah's prophecy And it is a warning for us. Isaiah warns Ahaz that his stability and survival will not be due to his political maneuvering or practical steps that he has taken. His hope is neither in his cleverness nor in the strength of foreign armies. Ahaz will only find true firmness by having faith in the living God. And if he lacks faith, he will be doomed to a fluttering and fearful heart and eventually to destruction. 
I feel compelled at this point to address a popular heresy of our day. There are probably many people today who would cheerfully affirm Isaiah 7, 9b. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. I'm thinking here of the New Age spirituality, which talks incessantly of the power of positive thinking and the healing power of personal faith. Faith will bring meaning to your life. Faith will grant you hope. Faith will help you endure a crisis. Everyone should have faith, they would say. The figurehead of this way of thinking in America would probably be Oprah Winfrey. I found an inspirational quote on www.oprah.com that seems to capture Oprah's message well. Quote, If you can't have faith in what is held up to you for faith, you must find things to believe in yourself. For a life without faith in something is too narrow a space to live. Close quote. Do you recognize what is being asserted here and what Oprah has said repeatedly to the 48 million viewers who watched her show every week until it concluded in 2011? Oprah is claiming that it doesn't matter what you believe in as long as you believe in something, as long as you have faith. And if you were to press her, Oprah, in whom or in what should I have faith? She may say, have faith in God, but she would be forced to say, I think, well, believe in yourself. Or maybe believe in love. Or maybe believe in the ultimate consciousness that connects us all. I hope you realize that this kind of generic pseudo-faith is utterly opposed to the biblical faith. Because according to the Bible, your faith is only as firm as the object of your faith. When Isaiah talks about faith here in chapter 7, verse 9, he means faith in the Lord. Yahweh, the King of Israel and the Lord of the nations, the Holy One, who has been revealed by His prophets and who demands that we come to Him not on our terms, but on His. This God has not given intuition to us as our God. He does not intend for us to be led by our feelings. He is not encountered through modern notions of love, peace, and tolerance. No, this God has given us a much firmer foundation for our faith. He has revealed himself through spoken words. He makes himself known to King Ahaz and all people through his prophets and ultimately through the word of God, his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, how dare we turn from what he has spoken in order to consult with our own inner sense of how things should be, elevating our feelings above the firm and reliable revelation of God. Such wisdom and talk show inspiration is a treason against the holy God, and it is suicide. Brothers and sisters, faith that is not anchored 
to the word of God and the finished work of Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation is a chain without the anchor. And what good is it in a time of crisis to drag a line through the water that has nothing to ground it on the other end? You will make a shipwreck of your life if that is your so-called faith. So all of us this morning should tremble at the warning of verse 9b. We have all weathered some storms in our lives, and the next crisis is on the horizon. When the car accident strikes, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. When your retirement savings vanish, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. When the cancer diagnosis is given, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. When your loved one is lost, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And yet, on the other hand, How strong and steady will you be when you bank everything on God and on his promises. This world and the devil could throw everything it has at you and you will remain unflappable. When your life is built on the rock, let the winds and the storms come. God will never leave you nor forsake you. You may remember near the beginning of this message, I described two ways that I think our modern American society deals with threats, crises, and fears. One is panicked preparation, and the other is a refusal of reality, the denial of those things that we should truly fear. And I claim that we would observe both tendencies in our passage this morning. We have already seen how King Ahaz frantically takes matters into his own hands in order to cope with the anticipated crisis. But Ahaz's more significant reaction was his denial of another and greater threat. A threat he didn't seem to consider at all. Some of us in this room struggle with anxiety, and fear, which we try to manage as best as we can, nervously taking all possible precautions and orchestrating our lives in such a way to minimize any kind of risk. Yet I would venture that many of us in this room have a different problem this morning. We are not nearly afraid enough. You see, We may obsess over our personal health and safety, the security of our homes and possessions and our financial stability, and all the while we deny or forget the greatest threat in the universe, the righteous wrath of the holy, holy, holy God. And we ignore the greatest coming crisis in the universe, the great and final judgment in which our lives will be fully exposed and we will have to give an account 
to the one who made us. This was King Ahaz's most fundamental problem. It was not that he feared Israel and Syria too much. It was that he didn't fear God enough. Here Ahaz is scrambling to protect himself and Jerusalem by any possible means, including child sacrifice. And he doesn't seem to consider that his desperate attempts at self-preservation might be making himself an enemy of Almighty God. His heart was shaking, contemplating the Syrian Israelite armies when his heart should have been shaking to think of the power of the Lord of hosts. If you have your Bibles open still, glance over at Isaiah 8, 12 through 13. And notice what the Lord declares to Isaiah there. Isaiah 8, 12 through 13. It says, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Do you fear the Lord this morning? Would you rather have any enemy in the world than to be an enemy of God? Do you respect God's power? Do you quiver before God's majesty? In Isaiah 66, 2, God Almighty declares this, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. When is the last time you trembled at God's word? Even Jesus teaches us to fear God. In Luke 12, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Fear God. And this was Jesus' teaching to his friends, the disciples. We have already heard in Isaiah of the fast approaching day of the Lord. And if you would, turn back with me to Isaiah 2, verse 12. <clears throat> Isaiah 2, verse 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. And then down to verse 17. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. What are we doing? Dinking around with horror movies and their cheap scares when God's day of thick darkness is on the horizon. 
So there is a fear that belongs to faith. And those who are fear, firm in faith will have a proper fear and respect of the Lord. And if you do not have this fear, you will not be firm at all. Let me close with a story that my dad told me. When my dad was a young man, he was a workaway on a cargo ship from the Netherlands to New York City. In other words, he secured a very cheap ticket across the Atlantic Ocean by volunteering to do some manual labor on the boat during the trip. One morning while he was eating breakfast in the middle of the Atlantic, one of the boatmen abruptly interrupted his breakfast and said to get on deck immediately. My dad knew that something was wrong, and walking out of the dining hall, he found that all hands were on deck, retightening all of the chains. When he asked one of the boatmen what was going on, the man simply pointed toward the distance. And my dad saw a thin, dark line on the horizon. And he didn't think much of it, but he started tightening all the chains on deck with the other boatmen. Fifteen minutes later, he looked up and a quarter of the sky was pitch black. A hurricane was coming. Someone on the deck let out a yell and pointed to the water. And my dad saw hundreds of dolphins, dolphins everywhere, swimming as fast as they could in the opposite direction of the storm, cutting through the water. Now my dad understood that he and the boat were in serious trouble. Another 15 minutes later, and the sky was half black. And my dad could see the first massive rolling waves in the distance approaching the boat. Friends, there is a storm approaching. A worldwide crisis and a day of deep darkness. And that day is the final judgment of God. All of us are sailing straight into it. And how foolish we would be to deny it. We may make ourselves feel better by ignoring it and eating and dancing below the deck while the storm approaches, but suppressing our fears of death and judgment is no way to prepare for them. Equally foolish would be to tighten frantically the chains on the deck, thinking that feeble preparations made in our own strength can make the slightest difference in weathering the wind and the waves. No, there is only one hope in this storm, and that is the anchor of faith, firmly secured to the finished and perfect work of Jesus Christ. For if you are not firm in that faith, you will not be firm at all. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this morning. For we do have a place of refuge and an anchor for our souls in times of trouble and distress. 
and we need not be feared because you are with us and you have given to us your Son that we might be forgiven and that we might not be your enemies any longer, but your friends. And so we're deeply thankful for Jesus this morning, and I pray that all of us would hold fast to him. We pray in his name. Amen.